Okay, we are now in chapter 6 of 1 Timothy. We are in this last section here, chapter 4, 1 through 6, 20. Cautions against worldly influences. Again, the deceivers that are there, uh, that Timothy must not give in to and follow, but rather he's to pursue uh, maturing. Uh, in, in the household of God, he has relationships with everyone. They are to be marked by encouragement, not by worldly domineering. The care for widows should be done with wisdom in a way that doesn't facilitate evil and also does not uh, overlook the needy, but rather is marked by God's care for those who are in need. And now what we're going to do is we're going to move into chapter 6, and he is going to, um, yeah, he's going to give a word to, uh, to servants or to slaves and then he's going to, in verses 3 through 10, he's going to speak about the dangers of um, discontentment. And then uh, finally, he's going to call Timothy to commit to, to godliness. So let's look first at chapter 6, verses 1 through 2, uh, a caution for, for servants or slaves. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Teach and urge these things. In first century Rome, slavery was a cultural reality. Um, and one of the things that you're going to notice throughout the New Testament is that Christians are always operating uh, in broken systems. This is always the case for every Christian in every age. We saw this earlier in chapter 2, whenever um, they were called to pray for wicked Nero, who is cutting off Christians' heads. So there is, there is a wicked system, and this is how Christians operate in it. Slavery is not a good system. It's not a godly system. It's a system that was, uh, yeah, filled with uh, oppression and mis, uh, yeah, mistreatment of, of image bearers. Though it is distinct that, um, from the, the, the sort of slavery that we see in North America uh, that was uh, focused particularly on um, uh, importing, kidnapping Africans and bringing them and enslaving them uh, for financial uh, purposes here in, in the United States. Um, the system was different in Rome, but we should not glamorize it. There's been a lot of really good work uh, about, um, about the system of slavery in, in Rome, and uh, yeah, I'm happy to, to pass along some, some resources uh, for that, and I'll try to maybe even link some if someone would remind me to link them on this, this page for people who are listening online. Um, so, in no way should we hear Paul's exhortations here to slaves to relate to masters as any sort of condoning of the wicked system, but rather it's, this is, it's the Ecclesiastes uh, verse of, you know, where the tree falls, there it lies, meaning this is, what, this is what we're dealing with in this moment. There are other passages, however, that I think um, that we see um, Paul, uh, um, yeah, with an eye toward um, a hopeful change for the system, particularly the book of uh, Philemon, where we see a restoration of a runaway slave to a believing master to where he now commends him and commands uh, Onesimus to treat, uh, or Philemon to treat Onesimus not as a, a slave, but as a brother, 
to where there's, there's this sort of change in the posture of the relationship. And I think it's, it's an, an eye toward the sort of reformation that believers would hope to see in this system. Happy to answer more questions about that. That being said, it was a, um, it was a reality. So he is saying here that those who are bondservants or slaves, that they are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. So they are to relate to the, the master that is over them in a way that shows honor to them. He says here, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. I understand how this can be extremely difficult to, to hear, especially with some of the oppression that would have happened. But the, the, the point is that you are to, um, and this is, I think, an application for all believers, even in hard circumstances, to relate to those over you with ways that still see them as image bearers, to not fall into the same trap that they might be in, which of demeaning people who are image bearers. You should not fall into the same trap even if you're on the other end of it. So you're going to return honor to an image bearer simply because they are an image bearer um, so that the name of God may not be reviled. So there is a way of, if you will, rejecting the system Re, re, yeah, reproving the system, there's a way to do it that is actually dishonoring that Christians should not engage in. There's a way that does it that reviles uh, the name of God. And he says, do not do that. And if you happen to have a believing master, which I just want to highlight here, Paul, the apostle, seems to think that it is possible for some slave masters to have been believers. Again, that does not condone their sin, um, does not condone uh, that. And I think some of these situations are more complex than others, and I trust that the Lord will have great wisdom on the day of judgment to sort it all out. But he says if they do have believing masters, that they are not to be disrespectful to them simply because they're brothers. You don't want to take advantage of it. So I don't think the exact uh, correlation here would be the same with a workplace analogy, though I think it's in the same sort of realm. So if you have a believing boss... You should not take advantage of them just because you have a believing boss um, to where you're lazy now because, hey, we go to church together and I can kind of, you know, like, no, that should not be the, the posture of the believer. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Teach and urge these things. So I think the, the main point that we should see here is that whatever station that you are in, enjoyable or unenjoyable, whether the system is pure or whether it's corrupt, that there is a way that Christians are to interact in that system that commends the gospel and looks curious to the world um, and should bring clarity to the, to the glory of Christ. Um, again, there's other places, Ephesians, where Paul will give commandments to uh, masters in ways that they need to think about relating to, to slaves. And again, I don't think this is Paul condoning the system. It's simply, this is where we are. Let's operate in it in a way that commends the gospel. So this is his word to, to servants here. Verse 3, uh, cravings that corrupt uh, con contentment. Be careful of this. Verse 3 through 5 here. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. So he's, if you disagree with God's Word 
and you are rejecting it, he says, you're not wise as many will think you're wise, but rather you are arrogant and ignorant. Arrogance and ignorance is what characterizes the rejection of God's Word. Now, in our day, that people are like, that sounds pretty arrogant. Like, no, actually, if there's a God who actually made the world and made you, He has the rights to tell us what to do. It's actually arrogant of us to say, I don't like the way you did it. <laughs> I know better than you, God. I think it's just really important for us to remember we don't know better than God uh, and that God has rights over us. We're bought with a price. We are not our own. And someone who is going to take that track, these false teachers again in particular, he has an unhealthy craving for controversy and quarrels about words which produce, again, envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. He's revisiting these false teachers and he's saying, listen, they appear godly. They speak as if they're godly. They act as if they know God and they have this progressive revelation that sets them apart as kind of these, you know, these, 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 um, these teachers that should be followed and praised and given money and affirmation and everything too. He says, but no, watch the fruit of what they're teaching. Their ministries provoke fights and quarrels. They're not peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers. You've got these people who are just all about trying to start controversies and get hung up on this person said that and this person said that and they're, all they do is make, yeah, they fuel hatred for one another. Whatever that is, that's not Christian. Don't follow leaders like that. Rather, rather those who are humble before God. Because these, these people, they are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. They don't have clarity about the truth and their, their minds are, are evidenced as being corrupted and wicked here. They're driven by the flesh rather than by the Spirit. He says don't follow them. They imagine that godliness is a means of gain. Now he's going to say godliness with contentment is great gain, but there's a right way and a wrong way to think about how godliness gives gain. The wrong way, the worldly way, is to see um, the cloak of godliness, putting that on, in order to build a platform for your own glory, in order to pad your pockets for your own enjoyment, in order to be able to control people and manipulate people for your own ego. That is godless, it's satanic, it's worldly. Don't follow those sort of leaders. But then there's another sort of godliness that's genuine. That's not a cloak, but what it is, it's actually fruit of the Spirit that radiates out, that the life of Christ is being manifested in, in, a, in, in a particular leader, and that is to be emulated and enjoyed and pursued. And one of the qualities that's going to mark that sort of godliness is contentment. And that's what he says here in verse 6. Godliness with contentment is great gain. For... Again, the reason why. We brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. So there's a posture of these godly leaders that should also characterize all Christians, and that is contentment. It's a pacified heart. One that is at peace with what God has given. 
that God has given what I need. Not always what I want, not always the way that I would have done it, but I trust that in this sense, Father knows best. And the Father has given me exactly what I need. My body's like it needs to be. I look like what I need to look like. Uh, the relationships that I have, that in this season, He's given me what I need. That the, the amount of, of wealth that I've accumulated or opportunities for making it is exactly what I need. That sort of contentment is fueled by a trust in God that says God is good. He, he is wise. He's taking care of me. And it's a, an awareness that stuff is stuff. We brought nothing with us. Right? When you were born, you didn't come out with a suitcase. All right? He didn't. All right? And in the same way, when you go, there's no, you know, the old, the old illustration of the, you don't see U-Hauls behind a hearse. Like, just where are you going to take that stuff, right? Like, we, we don't think like the Egyptians who used to bury their pharaohs with all of their wealth and their wives because they're going to the next world. Like, you can't take nothing with you. That's not how. So what we realize is that whatever we have in this life is from the Lord. It's for us to be enjoyed, but it's also for us to be generous with and commend the gospel. And whether we've been given little or much, we need to guard our hearts against discontentment. Because dis discontentment will drive you to become unfaithful. And that's where he goes here in verse 9. Those who desire to be rich. Notice it's a desire, which is the, it's the opposite here of contentment. Contentment is a pacified heart. Desire to be rich, a greedy heart that wants. They fall into temptation into a snare, a trap, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money, notice again here the love of it. So money is not the root of all evil. Money is neutral. The love of money, having it, the security that it provides, the ability to have the power to buy whatever you want, the whatever it may be, what money does for you, what it can get you, the way it makes you look, the love of that is the root of all kinds of evils. Lies, backbiting, stealing. Right? I mean, you could, we could, you could think of millions of wicked things people have done to make money. Right? Right now there's a family who's trying to figure out how to pay for a funeral and the amount of people who have come out of the woodwork who's trying to get a piece of it it's so wicked just taking advantage of people the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil and through this craving some again have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs this is the shipwreck again do you notice again all the way through this letter timothy is being Instructed by Paul to warn people about the dangers that hinder you from making it to heaven. The church is the household of God where the word of God is proclaimed in such a way that it helps people to cling to Christ exclusively and to not be tossed to and fro by all of the worldly influences that are out there so that you can make it home. But there are snares and schemes all along the journey. And this word is given to help the the church to remain faithful until they see Jesus face to face. 
verse 11, but as for you, so the, the first word there, but, shows a contrast. As for you, O man of God, flee these things. Notice here, it's not just like, eh, kind of ignore them. Run from it, Timothy. It's danger. It's danger to love the world. It's danger to love money and everything that comes with it. It's danger. Flee from that and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. This, by the way, I think is a really important word about holiness. Holiness is not just what you don't do, but it's equally important what you pursue. So holiness is resisting temptation and sin, and it's also pursuing godliness in Christ. Both are important. Oftentimes, holiness is merely described as what you don't do. Don't do this. Don't do that. That's bad. That's Christians don't do this. That's true. Don't discount the don't do's, but don't forget the do do's. Not that. You know what I'm saying? Like, remember, remember what we are to do, what we are to pursue, okay? Like, that's, that's the call here. Flee from this, flee to this. Pursue the things that, that mark the fruit of the Spirit. Fight the good fight of faith. So again, he's, you're in a war, Timothy. Walk by faith. Pursue Him. Do not be dissuaded to the right or to the left. This is warfare, Timothy. Fight the good fight. How do you do that? Well, take hold of the eternal life to which you've been called about and by which you've made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. The way that you fight the good fight is you keep your eyes on Christ. That This is what a pastor does. A pastor leads with one eye on the people and one eye on the shepherd, on the Savior, on heaven. And we're constantly calling people, let's go home, let's go home, let's go home. We're almost there. That's why you'll often hear me say, we're almost home. Like, that's my job is to help you to heaven. And your job is to help me to heaven. That's what a church does. We help one another to look to Christ, to cling to Him. Timothy, keep fighting. There's a war going on, but we're going home and it's worth it. Be careful and tell the people to be careful because there's shipwreck opportunities on every side. Tell people to not be persuaded by the worldly influences that are going to call you to edit and mis edit God's word and to make excuses for why you don't need to obey this or that. Be on guard, Timothy. Help the church to be on guard. We're almost home. Imitate Christ. Verse 13, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. So notice here his charge is, I'm giving you this word, Timothy, before God Almighty and before Jesus the Lord of glory. And in the same way that he made the good confession about who he was, in front of Pilate, even when it was going to cost him his life. Timothy, this might cost you your life, but you follow the, the image of, you follow the, uh, the example of Jesus. Be willing, no matter what it costs, to lay down your life and to stand with Christ. Keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice, notice what fuels perseverance of faith. Look to Christ now and look for Christ then. The eyes are on Jesus through the whole thing. He's your hope now. Imitate Him now. 
Look back to what he did, imitate it by the power of the Spirit, and look to the fact that he's coming soon and help the congregation to see that. Look to Jesus now, congregation. Look to Jesus then, congregation. Because soon and very soon, we're going to see the King. He's coming. Which he will display at the proper time. Verse 15. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. He revisits this same sort of praise that he ended chapter 1 with. Remember after his testimony, all he could do was praise basically with the same language where there, this God who is glorious and worthy to be trusted. He does it again here. Right? He's pointing them to see God. And at the proper time, this King of glory, He's coming. And though you do not see Him now, you love Him. And you will see Him. Soon and very soon, we're going to see the King. Notice how in this whole letter, He began the letter with pointing Him to Jesus, who had been so patient with Him as a sinner and gave Him mercy. So in light of that, let's Let's operate in his household as we're commanded to, helping people see Jesus. And now he comes back to Jesus. <laughs> Seek him. Soon we're seeing him. And he revisits here in a way that the order, again, I acknowledge is a little interesting. But he revisits here um, the issue of generosity, which he's been on already. He's, he's tying these things together, which I think makes sense in the Look to eternal, come back to how we're living now. Look to eternal, come back to how we're living now, which is basically the Christian life. Where he reminds the rich to be generous, verse 17. As for the rich in the present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good and to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. The storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so they may take hold of that which is truly life. First of all, notice here, it's not sinful to be rich. It's what you do with what God gives you. And he gives a particular exhortation here to the rich, which, by the way, if you want to be a pastor, you need to not be intimidated by people who have money. I have a couple friends who are very wealthy, and one of the things that they have thanked me for and this is not to commend me. There's plenty of other people who do this. I'm just giving you an example of a testimony from, from a couple of families. They have thanked me and thanked other pastors here for not treating them with partiality, particularly in regards to their sin, because sometimes churches can be a very unsafe place for wealthy people because people will cater to them and allow them to have sin that remains because you don't want to see the givers go. That is a form of prejudice and partiality that is not good for your soul and is not good for their soul and is not good for the glory of God. So part of being a pastor is that you need to have eyes that don't see how much somebody's worth in regards to their financial um, situation. But rather you see someone's worth being the fact that they are an image bearer and a child of God who needs shepherding in whatever circumstance they may have. So for the rich... Tell them not to be prideful. Be careful about the temptation to trust how smart you are that got you in this situation, right? Nor to set your hope on it. Don't trust it, right? 
but rather on God who supplies everything to enjoy. If you're rich, if you have money, now again, some of you hear that and you automatically, that ain't me. Remember, compared to most people in human history, I mean, we are one of the, this is a a fact, I think, we are one of the wealthiest congregations in the history of the world. Just statistically. I'm not saying there's not churches who are richer. I'm just saying, need to keep in mind the sort of wealth that we have is really unparalleled in Christian history. And that's not a boast, that's a stewardship, right? So, and a lot of American churches fit into this situation, the wealthiest in the history of the world. So if you got money, same with churches and with members there to do good, to be rich in good works, be generous and ready to share. Why? Because you're storing up treasure for themselves. Notice here the teaching of Jesus. The apostles are applying the teaching of Jesus. Storing up treasures for themselves is a good foundation for the future so they may take hold of that which is truly life. The way you store treasures in heaven is you use treasures on earth to fund and fuel gospel purposes. That's what he's doing. So for those of you who in your family budget, you, use, you set money aside to get meals, to invite people over, like that's a way to steward your wealth in a way to help further the gospel. And finally, guard the good deposit. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and the contradiction of which is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Notice again there, the shipwreck image. Grace be with you. He calls him once again to the idea of stewardship. You've been entrusted with the deposit. Don't, yeah, don't get into all of the distracting things. People claim to be wise and full of knowledge, but rather know that those things swerve you from the faith. Look to Christ. Lean upon His grace. Soon we will see Him. That's the book of 1 Timothy. I'm happy to take a couple questions, but not many. They may have a helpful question that would be edifying for all. I'm Butch. And Hi, Butch. I want, to, and I want to tell you that last night when you talked about uh, uh, Dave Verhive and the four families that came with him from Capitol Hill Baptist Church, this, this, this church was shipwrecked and God sent a blessing that is just unfathomable to realize that we had 20 people and God has blessed us in the last 10 years with your know-how and your experience and how to get people in here to make the church go forward for God, not for us. And it's a real blessing that we have the opportunity to share with one another these boot camps and prayer meetings and Bible studies in the morning and just the outreach of love and and and. and and consideration for others that we showed that, 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 that God has love for our church, and we appreciate everything. Thank you, Butch. Um, praise God. And I just want to acknowledge, brother, that, that you're one of the people who stayed and prayed and pled with God to do good things. And we're certainly no perfect church, but 
the Lord is working and it's encouraging. And I'm thankful that the Lord has allowed you to see some of the fruit of your prayers. We don't always get to see God say yes to things, but sometimes we do. And we can thank him for it. So praise God. I'll pray for us. Oh, Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would help us to be a people who receive it and believe it. Father, we thank you for this letter, and we pray that we might consider the things that we've heard. Lord, some of it's uncomfortable to us. Would you help us to see it all in the context of a call to behold Christ, to believe upon Christ, to persevere in faith in Christ, and for, for our souls to not be shipwrecked and to take others with us. But would you help us to cling to the shepherd and follow him, that we might yeah, bring him glory and honor, and that we might know joy and peace. And we pray in the name of Christ. Amen.